Chapter Seven of A Bachelor Girl in Burma by Geraldine E. Mitten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven, The Golden City. My first vision of Mandalay, the Golden City, was not an inspiring one. The train got in about midday, and I looked out upon a good-sized station and a strong fence guarded by a ticket collector behind whom appeared the motliest throng I had yet seen. I did not know there was another exit for the first-class passengers, and so I meekly followed my luggage as it was carried out to the garries through this thronging crowd. I knew better another time. As the box and the garry were about the same size, there was some difficulty in fitting the one on to the other, but it was done. I squeezed inside into the very small space that the remainder of my possessions left for me, and looked on with amusement while poor Chinnaswamy, with the expression of an old sheep amid a pack of ravening wolves, attempted to satisfy the demands of those who thronged upon him for bakshish, in compensation for their share in lifting the said box to its perilous position. When we finally got away from their clamour and on to the road outside, I was surprised to see tram lines. An electric car runs right down to the shore of the river about three miles away. It is a great boon, as it goes much more quickly and smoothly than a gary, and the front part is reserved for first-class passengers. Very near the station is the Dak Bungalow, standing in a dusty compound. I had not then tried the delights of a Dak Bungalow, but was destined to have that gap in my experience amply filled. The address I had given to the Garywalla was that of Gales's Hotel, for though I had been preceded at Mandalay by a note of introduction to the Deputy Commissioner, I had learned from my friends at Sagaing he was much harassed on account of an outbreak of plague, and I did not want to bother him further. Also, in my innocence, I fancied the hotel would do very well. There is besides the hotel in Mandalay a boarding-house and a circuit-house, as well as the Dak Bungalow. An ordinary visitor must try for accommodation at the first two, before he can be admitted to the third, unless he has a letter of introduction from the deputy commissioner. As for the circuit-house, that is a very superior place indeed, reserved for government and other officials. The road from the station comes out on one side of the moat, which lies four square in the town, enclosing the old red wall of the palace. Along this we passed, and down another side, before turning into the town proper, where there were wide streets of whitewashed and other buildings, some substantial and some untidy, but all lacking any sort of interest or beauty. Externally the hotel did not look unprepossessing, but internally I was told there was only one room vacant and that was on the ground floor. I was led to it through the principal eating-room, where several English people were having tiffin. On the raising of a dirty curtain I saw the filthiest room it has ever been my lot to enter. The stained, discolored walls that had once been whitewashed, the mattresses that lay uncovered on two rickety wooden bedsteads, efflorescing a strong odor. There was plenty of evidence of other occupants of an indescribable nature, from one side of the room opened off a noisome cupboard, absolutely dark, and about the size of a large hearth-rug. This was the bathroom. I stepped across and looked out of the window into a pestilential backyard, surrounded by high walls. 
For this accommodation, the native in charge demanded eight rupees a night. I wondered what I looked like, and would have glanced at the glass had there been such a thing. Evidently my month in the East had not rubbed off the European bloom to any great extent. It was the work of a few minutes to get out a sheet of note-paper, and write a note adding to the worries of the deputy commissioner by asking him to tell me of any accommodation, clean, where I could lodge. Then I left my luggage at the hotel for the while, and drove back all along the side of the moat to the deputy commissioner's house, which lay away from the town in the residential part eastward. Even in small ways one is continually pulled up by the ignorance of the language. It is odd to be unable to carry on a conversation with the servant who answers the front door of a house, yet many of the house-servants did not speak English. By the aid of the boy, however, I arrived at the fact that the deputy commissioner was at the courthouse, and, still by aid of the boy, I instructed the Garywalla to drive me there. Even with the sun-shutters as a protection, the inside of a gary at midday is like an oven, and I never felt so nearly roasted in my life as when I sat outside that courthouse waiting to get my note in to the deputy commissioner, who was engaged in a very important case. A hasty line telling me to go to the circuit-house was my reward at length, and, though I felt very grateful, I did not realize until later the immense boon which had been bestowed on me, for the Mandalay circuit-house is deservedly famous throughout the land. It stands in a large compound near the southeastern corner of the palace-wall, overlooking the moat, with a full view of the Shan Hills to the eastward. It is large and well built of teak. On the ground floor is a room used as a dining-room. Upstairs are three suites of large rooms, each with a section of wide veranda cut off from the next by a partition for a sitting-room, and a bedroom and bathroom behind. The middle suite I found occupied on my arrival, so I took the eastern, which was really far the best, as it commanded a view of the lovely hills. The Durwan, who was a very respectful and obliging old man, told me that if I liked he would do for me all day, at the reasonable rate of four rupees eight annas, including afternoon tea, and this I accepted. The delight of finding myself in these cool, airy, clean quarters was great. I sent the boy for the luggage, and, being very tired and hot, with so much rattling about in the heat of the day, I lay down and had a sweet siesta. The four days I passed there were among the happiest I spent in Burma. The severe simplicity of the dark teak surroundings, floor, walls, and ceiling, appealed to me, and the views from the open veranda were a constant source of joy. Right opposite across the road was the mirror-like moat, half covered by flat lotus leaves, though the lilies themselves were not out at this time. Behind the moat, which was fifty yards in width, rose a high wall of leather-worn red brick, with crenellated parapet, lookout towers or piatthats of a deep maroon color, with pinnacled, decorated roofs rising story above story, adorned the corners and the gates. Mandalay Hill, a conical and not very high hill, rose beyond, above the treetops that were enclosed by the palace wall. To the east were the Shan Hills, the edge of the great plateau of elevated land that extends for miles in the center of the country, and, as the sun dropped in the west, lights and colors indescribable appeared in the heights and hollows. 
They glowed with all the mystery and variety of a jewel, changing every moment. Along the broad road, by the moat, came a constant though straggling procession that afforded me never-ending amusement. A Perda woman in brilliant puce, her face hidden in the folds of her garment, a garment so cleverly adjusted that it was robe and skirt and headdress all in one. Two natives lazily manipulating a little hand-cart, by means of which they drew water from the moat, and sprayed it on the road, arousing such a cloud of steam and dust as showed the roadway to have been well-nigh red-hot. A gary crammed with well-to-do Burmans, the ends of their pink scarfs fluttering from the windows. A slow-moving bullock-cart so laden with paddy-straw that the bullocks themselves were half-covered by it. A stout Burman, his lungi caught up halfway up his legs, and his umbrella tucked under his arm, making a brilliant spot of color in his pink and crimson, as he walked in a business-like way along the margin of the moat. A rather drabby-looking native with a Burman wife, whose strut was even more pronounced than that of the generality of her sisters. Presently the military band of a native resident, dressed in khaki, enlivened the scene. As the afternoon grew late, European residents appeared. A motor-car spun past, then a high dog-cart with two ladies in white in it, and so on. The variety of the procession was inexhaustible. It is going on still from day to day, but I no longer can look out on it from the dark teak veranda, except in the eye of memory. Oh, that veranda! What peaceful days it enshrined for me! The furniture was severely simple, but perfectly adequate. A wooden table, a deck chair, an upright chair, a small table, a lamp, and a waste-paper basket. And what could any rational being want more? The waste-paper basket was the touch of genius that rounded the whole thing to perfection. The Derwan brought me up a tray with good tea and toast and jam, which was very welcome. At first one does not mind the toast, which is always exactly the same, with a kind of smoky flavor about it, doubtless from being done at a wood fire. But after a while it palls. I had it twice a day regularly, for the native bread was, to me at least, uneatable. The tea is generally fair, but to get milk is a difficulty. The Burmans do not milk their cows, and think our doing so disgusting. Colonel Yule, in his interesting book, The Mission to the Court of Ava, suggests that one reason why the cattle in Burma are so flourishing is that the calves get all the milk. Even many of the English residents use condensed milk, finding the real stuff difficult to obtain, and as, of all unpalatable productions, condensed milk is the most abominable, I frequently use a slice of lime instead. English jam is largely imported, and easy to get almost everywhere. It was a great boon to me, as the butter varies much, and is sometimes uneatable. Much of it is tinned, but I discovered that tinned or not it is always improved by washing, a fact that I learned from Chinnaswamy, who used to turn rank yellow stuff into something soft and white like cream cheese. I did not in the least know how to set about seeing the sights of Mandalay, nor did I even know what they were. I had no guide-book, and Burma is not like England, where one has only to ask. After tea I took a gary and went to the post-office for my letters. In doing so, I had to drive the length of the moat again, and got a clearer idea of it. 
It is a mile and an eighth long on each of the four sides. On the inner side it is overlooked by the wall which enclosed the old city. Not that it was very old, for the whole of Mandalay only dates from 1858. This part is now called the fort, and in the center lie the congeries of the palace buildings. The moat is crossed by one bridge at the center of each side, and an extra one on the west. The four principal bridges lead up to massive entrances in the walls, great gateways painted snowy white, faced by a huge block of masonry for defensive purposes, and crowned by a maroon piathet. The whole effect is very fine. The curiously shaped ridges and the great white artificial cliffs to which they lead up are the most dazzling in the sunshine, casting deep blue shadows. Outside the fort is the new city, laid out in rectangles with long straight roads, very broad and very dull. It was very different from my imaginings, which had prompted me to look for dark shadows and wonderful lights, quaint carving and grotesque narrow vistas at every turn. Almost every one expects the same thing of Mandalay, and is surprised at the reality. Instead of a city of palaces, it is a city of hovels, with a palace in the centre. The whole interest and scenic effect linger round the palace, and the one or two other objects of interest scattered at some distance from each other. The post office is quite near Gales's hotel. The assistants there were most pleasant and obliging, as indeed I found all the baboos and Eurasians employed in government service with whom I came in contact. They were particularly so at Mandalay, forwarding my correspondence when I left, and taking a deep personal interest in it. One time, when I went there to send off my watch by post, the man in charge asked me what it was suggested I had done it up inadequately, and invited me inside while he found a suitable box and repacked it himself. The telegraph office was in another block from the post office. This is generally so in Burma. The two are kept quite separate. Letters are erratic and undependable, but telegrams can always be relied on, and you may have them any one of three classes, special, ordinary, or deferred. Deferred is the most generally used, and the idea is, I suppose, they may be set aside until the line is clear, but they always seem to go very promptly, and one only pays four annas for ten words, not including the address. I did not do anything else that afternoon, for I was glad enough to get back to that glorious veranda and watch the light glowing in roseate hues on the Shan Hills. I heard the occupant of the next suite of rooms striding up and down and talking to a clerk, so was not surprised when eight o'clock came and I descended for dinner to find him there, too. He was an inspector in the education department, and when I explained my position, he very kindly offered to lend me a Burman clerk, than whom there is no better guide, to show me round the next day. He said he would not give me his own clerk, but borrow the deputy inspectors, and the only man who would browse was the deputy, and that did not matter, with all of which I perfectly agreed. We arranged for the clerk to be there at 7.30 next morning. Notwithstanding the alarming noises, the pigeons or rats made in the high-gabled roof, I slept like a top that night. When I awoke I found the whole place bathed in a sheet of white mist. As the sun rose, this melted away, and every twig and branch dripped refreshingly, while tiny whiffs of steam rose from all over the moat. 
as if it were hot water. It was distinctly cooler than it had been down country. Punctual to time, the Berman clerk appeared below with a gary. He was a nice-looking, pleasant-mannered boy, dressed native fashion, with a pink turban. He salaamed prettily when he saw me. I asked him where we should go first, and he suggested the palace and 729 pagodas in the morning, and perhaps the Arakan pagoda, which was rather far out in the afternoon. I wondered where he was going to sit, for there was no room for him on the box, and he looked rather too superior to hang on behind the gary as Chinna did. But a trifle like that presents no difficulty to the easy-going Berman. He scrambled up past the wild, unkempt native driver, and jumped up on to the roof, where he enjoyed himself hugely, having a grand holiday regardless of his superior's grousing. His name, he told me, was Mung Lu Po. We crossed one of the fascinating maroon and white bridges, rounded the mass of white masonry defending the gate, and passed within the walls into a wide open space, with a few scattered houses and trees, and immense tracts of khaki-colored grass on which khaki-colored regiments were drilling. It was difficult mentally to reconstruct the scene, as it must have been before the English cleared out the six thousand houses that stood therein, leaving the palace free in the center. It seemed quite a long way before we came to the palace, which was not what we associate with the word at all, but a group or congeries of detached buildings, set at all angles round the courts of various sizes. They are now open, free to all comers, though formerly the English residents had a club there, and there was so much grumbling when the clubites were forced to go elsewhere. The buildings are all of one story. Even the great seven-roof spire of the king's house, the most imposing of all, is a sham, having no upper stories. This peculiarity is due to the fact of the Burmans' great dislike to knowing that another man's feet are over their head. There is a certain similarity between the buildings, and the general impression is that of wonderful vistas and gorgeous detail, with the blackest shadows and glowing light. In one of the courts there was the large bougainvillea, whose royal magenta blossoms showed up startlingly against the white walls near. Dark interiors were unexpectedly lit up by gleams falling upon the stout red and gold columns, and some of the apartments were completely panelled with mirror mosaic of fine design. As its garishness was toned by age, the effect was good. Through the dark gloom of the unwindowed rooms, through bright courts and again into gloom, the eye was carried on from door to door, to see at last, perhaps, the figure of a guardian in a dark blue uniform and red sash, standing motionless, framed in light. The gleam of a dark green balustrade caught the attention, and, though it was made of nothing but a row of glass bottles, the detail is not unhandsome. In the Queen's apartments the mirrors on the walls are hand-painted with flowers, and the walls of another room, near, are entirely carved and perforated. The golden seven-roofed spire springs gracefully through the soda-water bottle shape to a golden hattie. Beneath this is the huge gilt throne, set thick with looking-glass panels, and founded on living human flesh and blood. Quote, Mandalay was commenced in 1858. When the foundations of the city wall were laid, fifty-two persons of both sexes, and of various age and rank, were consigned to a living tomb. Three were buried under each of the twelve city gates. 
one at each of the four corners, one under each of the palace gates, and at the corners of the timber stockade, and four beneath the throne itself. The selection had to be made with care, for the victims were required to be representative people, born on special days of the week, and the boys buried were not to have any tattoo marks on them, the girls not to have their ears bored. When it was known that the troops were making the collection, no one was to be seen about the streets, except in the great bands in the middle of the day. The government gave a series of magnificent dramatic entertainments, but no one went to see them. Eventually, however, the tale was made up, and the building went on a piece. From The Berman, His Life and Notions, by Sir J. G. Scott, KCIE. The steps of the Golden Throne were oftentimes crowded with princes of the blood royal, all of whom were destined to come to a violent death by the fears of the reigning monarch. The doors of the throne room are elaborately carved in gilt. I took a photo of my guide sitting in one of them, but, unfortunately, the scaffolding belonging to some repairs then going on has spoiled the effect. In the hall of audience, near the throne room, are rows of stately gold pillars, which, when the sun gets low and strikes in horizontally, glow as if they were transparent. The only other two points of interest in the grounds are the high wooden watch-tower, which is worth ascending because of the view, and the museum, where may be seen quaint little figures dressed in the costumes of the old court, a style of dress still always adopted at the plays or plays. The palace was built during the reign of King Minden, the predecessor of Thebaugh, and the capital was then transferred here. The Burmese were very fond of changing their capitals, and the numbers of old cities can claim to have been the chief of the country in their time. The English had annexed Tenasserim, Arakan, and part of Martaban in 1826, and the Pegu district after the Second War in 1852. The Burmese king at this time refused to cede any part of the country which had been conquered by the British, and it was useless to attempt to get him to sign any treaty defining the boundary between what remained to him of the country and that taken by the English. Therefore, the viceroy, Lord Dalusi, drew a line across the map following a parallel of latitude, and declared that to be the boundary, a sensible proceeding, but one which would probably nowadays call forth a howl from the little Englanders. King Minden died in 1878, and was succeeded by one of his thirty sons, namely Thebaugh, whose mother had made herself mistress of the palace. Thebaugh's reign of bloodshed and cruelty went from bad to worse. Only a short time after his accession, he ordered a massacre of the majority of his relatives. All who did not escape were seized, and either beaten to death with bludgeons or half-strangled. The bodies of the women and children, in some cases only half-dead, were pitched into a large pit prepared for them, and the earth stamped down. It is said that it moved uneasily for three days subsequently. The corpses of the men, the royal princes, were thrown into the Irrawaddy, having been conveyed there in eight cartloads. The whole holocaust included about eighty victims. The remonstrances of the British resident were treated with contempt. Massacres and cruelties continued remorselessly. In 1884 they reached their height, 
when the number of men, women, and children brutally murdered in a short time was between two and three hundred. Quote, On the day after the chief massacre, the corpses were carted out of the city, and were exposed for some days in the burial ground on the west. Here they remained, mutilated, putrefying, and uncovered with earth to show how terrible a thing it was to incur the royal displeasure. Hands and legs were hacked off to loosen the prison irons, before the putrefying bodies were thrown, in heaps of four and five together, into shallow graves, and given an insufficient covering of about a foot of earth. While these atrocities were being perpetuated, and pigs and pariodogs unearthed the corpses, and battened on the loathsome feasts thus plentifully provided for them by the inhumanity of the king, his consort and his ministers— high festival was being held within the palace. Theatrical performances were given continuously, night after night. End quote. From Burma Under British Rule and Before by John Nisbet quote, Fresh massacres took place in the capital. Bands of robbers infested the country and raided at will into the British territory. The greater part of the tributary Shan states rose in rebellion, and the whole of Upper Burma became disorganized, with the inevitable result of a paralysis of our trade. End quote. By Sir J. G. Scott, K.C.I.E. At length in October 1885, the British government took notice of the cries and bloodshed, and sent a force to advance on Mandalay, an expedition which ended in the annexation of Upper Burma, when Thebaugh was exiled to spend the remainder of his life endurance in England. This book is nothing but a personal travel book, and does not profess to treat in any way the history of Burma, but it is impossible to avoid thus touching very slightly on the scenes of horror so recently enacted in the great open spaces now lying peacefully beneath the cloudless sky. Bloodshed and cruelty seemed far enough off on that glorious morning, when I wandered through the sunlit courts, ablaze with sunshine, and was watched curiously by the quiet guardians. We left the palace by the eastern gate, and went straight to the famous shrines of Kutuda, or the royal merit-house built by Thebaugh's uncle, where the whole of the Buddhist scriptures are inscribed on black slabs enclosed in small shrines. This is known by various names, among which the most popular is the 729 pagodas. The shrines are all arranged in parallel lines on the sides of a square, in the midst of which rises a white pagoda. They are not very large, and each one has a little dome at the top, and is pierced by four openings showing within the slab of black stone like a tombstone, beautifully inscribed with the scriptures. By mounting to the platform of the central pagoda, a very good idea can be gained of the whole. The whiteness of the little white shrines is emphasized here and there by rich and heavy evergreen shrubs, and behind may be seen the faraway hills. Not very far from the Kutodha are some interesting chungs, and also the incomparable pagoda, which was partly burnt not long ago. This is surrounded by a row of small shrines, in each of which is a roughly made figure of a pongi kneeling in adoration. Behind rise Mandalay Hill, of no very great height, though it entails a rough scramble to get to the summit. 
it is covered with scrub and is a fine place in which to encounter snakes from the top there is a wide view of the great plain in which mandalay lies and from one point a very striking glimpse of the Kuto dao after this expedition i return to lunch and rest asking mung lu po to come again at four thirty to take me out to which he willingly agreed i found the derwent had provided a very good breakfast of several courses including of course curry and that my friend the education inspector had departed at four thirty punctually my guide arrived with a gary and we started off for the arakan pagoda of which i had heard so much this is a long drive two or three miles at least and anything but pleasant the way seemed to go on endlessly over very dusty wide roads with medium-sized trees beside them also white with dust it seems impossible that people can live healthily in such a welter of dust they must breathe it and eat it continually the roads were lined mostly by small huts many of them dilapidated with the framework very much askew and the plated mats which formed the walls frayed at the edges they were well spaced out standing apart from one another with dusty growth of tree or plantain beside them all the huts were raised two or three feet from the ground and beneath them swarmed huge goats and enormous black pigs like boars skinny hens and naked children the houses were often quite open in front and domestic arrangements went on in full view of all the neighbors it was curious to see the handwork done outside in a roadway and how the trades tended to segregate one man was working at good wicker chairs and a row of chairmakers would be near him then came a colony of shoemakers the red and emerald velvet toes showing up gaily the manufacture of little wooden toys painted in gaudy colors is a favorite industry in the neighborhood of the pagoda a row of sewing machines would proclaim a colony of derseys and then in the middle of all the dirt right in the roadway i saw a man cooking flat cakes on a kind of gridiron at length we saw the arakan pagoda but it is hemmed in and does not stand to such advantage as the shwedagon outside the entrance were two immense leogryphs passing between which we went up a long arcade but to my great disappointment the stalls were nearly all shut and the place deserted mung lu po told me the people went away early on account of the plague i asked him if he were afraid of infection but he shook his head with a smile the great feature of the pagoda is the large golden buddha of a peculiar sanctity this was brought from arakan in seventeen eighty four and to it the pagoda owes its name when we came round to the shrine where it was i found a crowd of some twenty or thirty people bowing and intoning their monotonous chant rows of small candles stuck by their grease on to the floor were guttering in the draught before the great image mong lu po told me i might pass in front of the crowd without offence and holding my muslin skirt so as not to catch a light i did so the buddha is colossal but so hemmed in by its straightened walls that he is not seen to advantage one or two burmans were arranging a kind of paper robe around him which my guide explained was to take care of him for though his face is brass and not gold like mashweb wen's buddha his body is all covered with gold leaf the expression of his brazen countenance is hard and cruel, and he wears a great tiara like a pope. The wunduk, 
a Burmese official said to Major Fair of the 1855 embassy, quote, It is a faithful representation of the living original. When the Lord Gaudama visited Arakan, the Chanda Surya was the king of that country. The Buddha being about to depart, the king prayed him to leave his blessed resemblance and substitute with them as some consolation for his absence. The Buddha consented. Several attempts were made to cast an image, but they all failed. At length, by the divine interposition, the present image was successfully obtained. End quote. Colonel Yule. This accounts for the great veneration with which the image is regarded. When it is considered that it is about twelve feet high and of solid brass, to bring it over the Arakanyoma seems a remarkable feat. It is supposed to have been brought in several pieces. It was a strange sensation to be standing in that small chamber, surrounded closely by those people, separated by such gulfs of tradition and racial characteristics from me. In the semi-dimness the voices chanted louder and louder for my benefit, and the men aloft grinned down and asked my Burman if I would like the cloth or robe removed. I assented at once, and they disclosed the gold leaf with which the brazen body of the image is lavishly encrusted by the devotion of generations. As I passed out, three haggard old nuns set upon me with cries for pice. I happened to have three, though such small coins rarely come my way, so I gave them into one skinny clutching hand, meaning its owner got to share them with the others. Not a bit of it. Having got them, she incontinently bolted, and the others clamoured more wildly than before. I had no more pice, but produced a two-anna bit. Mung Lu Po promptly intercepted it as I was about to give it to them, and explaining it was far too much for a donation, took it to a stall to get it changed. He failed in his quest, and then asked one of the toothless old crones for change. From some mysterious fold in her drab garments, she produced a dirty bit of rag, in which were knotted seven pice. My wise guide thereupon gave each of the old women one pice on condition that they went away, which they did. I bought some of the cheap and gaudy tigers and monkeys sold there, which delight children, and after strolling round the pagoda, we returned to the gary. My guide told me he was now going to show me the Queen's Chung, otherwise called the Golden Monastery and away we jolted merrily, he still enjoying his exalted position on the roof. The Queen's Chung is one of those things which no one who visits Mandalay should fail to see. It is a perfectly magnificent building, standing in a very large parawoon, or compound, overshadowed by large trees. Loathsome periodogs of very large size rushed out to bark at us, making the air resound with their yelps. The neighborhood of a chung attracts many of their kind, for the overflowing begging-bowls of the Pungis provide an ample surplus for such undesirable pensioners. Though the noise the dogs make is terrifying to anyone nervous, they are not ferocious. Never having been unkindly treated, they have no cause to hate man. By nature, curs, they slink away at the merest threat of a stick or stone, and it is well it is so, for a bite from mouths such as theirs would probably be poisonous. A mighty trunk lay prostrate in the compound, and the yellow-robed brethren swarmed round it, rolling it along over the smooth ground. This sight surprised me, as I was under the impression they did no physical work at all, but this my guide contradicted. 
He said the log had evidently been a present to them, and they were going to cut it up for their own use. They all stopped their work to stare at us, but, taking no heed of them, we went on toward Chong. It rose in a sevenfold roof in tiers of rusty gold, high against the thrilling blue of the sky. Every square inch of the walls was carved and covered with gilt. When the sun caught one corner, it shone out radiating rich light. The chungs I saw were all on the same pattern. The ground floor is unused and is, in fact, merely an open space between posts, which serves as a playground for the boys who are taught in the chung. A short flight of steps leads to a veranda, from the center of which rises the main building. In this, as in other Burman buildings, there is but one story, though the impression is a many. I peeped into a sort of broad corridor which ran around it, opening on to the veranda, and saw several Pungyis lying about in sleepy content on mats and mattresses. Some children had followed us up out of curiosity, and among them was one small boy with the shaven pall and yellow raiment of the neophyte. He looked so very young that I asked his age, and was told he was only ten. By this time several of the Pungyis themselves had joined us, and stood close around with their curious yellowish faces, repeating the hue of their garments. Their beetle-brown eyes were unpleasant, and their expressions sensual and lowering. The life they lead, in its perpetual sloth and lack of interest, is not one to encourage spirituality, and it is wonderful that worse results do not arise from it. These particular Pungis had evidently no scruple about looking at a woman, or perhaps a white woman did not count in their code. Anyway, they came very near indeed, and scrutinized me so eagerly that I should not have been surprised to feel their long, thin, parchment fingers in contact with my dress. Though they refrained from actually touching me, they asked many questions of my guide, and when at last I inquired if I might see inside the shrine, they assented gleefully, as proud as children, to show off their treasures. The first moment I entered the gloom of the hall after the brilliancy of the sunshine outside, I could see nothing but outlines of pillars. Then, as my pupils enlarged, I made out various objects heavily carved. The Pungis lit a candle and gave it to Mung La Po to hold. Then, they almost tumbled over each other in their extreme eagerness to point out the rich design of the wood carving that ran along the balustrade surrounding the shrine. It was an extraordinarily high relief, undercut to the depth of two or three inches, and represented babies and dragons, fruit and flowers. I was then invited further up into the Holy of Holies. Once again, for a moment, there came over me, almost overpoweringly, that sense of strange aloneness. Here, in the dimness, with only one flickering candle, was I surrounded by a people so utterly alien in habit, religion, and thought, that the gulf seemed verily impassable. But the moment passed, and I looked on them once more, as I had done, as children. Then a cloth was removed, and the greatest treasure of all was exhibited. It was Gautama's tooth, a tusk about the size of my little finger, resembling a boar's tusk, poised on wire over a bunch of wax flowers in a glass case. Mong Lu Po was anxious to impress on me. The very great honor it was for me to see it, as such a holy relic is usually buried in the heart of a mighty pagoda and in any case is rarely shown to a stranger, 
and I did my best to live up to the expectations of my appreciation. The Pungis asked through the interpreter where I came from, and when I told them London, they repeated it in various odd intonations. I tried to carry on some conversation, inquiring how they spent their days. They replied they prayed and taught. But when I expressed a wish to see the schoolboys, I was told, Boys dismissed. As I finally moved away, I asked my guide if I should give them anything, but he said they were forbidden to take money, so I could only wish them a cordial good-bye, and left them standing there rather blankly, as if the unwanted excitement had left a flatness behind. This was on a Friday. I spent the whole of the next day in Mandalay, too. The bazaar is well worth visiting. It is all very modern and clean and neat, utterly different from the dark, noisy, narrow alleyways of the Mulmain Bazaar. Here one can see in perfection the dainty little Burmese maidens, who run about and laugh and even put their arms round you if you give them the least encouragement. At one stall in particular, C-12, I was fascinated by the glory of the silks, especially by the peculiar yellow that one can get nowhere else, which turns to saffron and orange and gold, all in different folds. Here were also lovely mauves and blues, though these are not fashionable Burmese colors. When we passed on to a second stall, the keeper of the first, a dainty little maiden, ran after us and, through the boy, said she could show us another good stall where there were many other kinds of silk. We followed her and she led us promptly back to her own, a specimen of ingenious trading, not without its humor. I had meant to leave at eight o'clock on Sunday morning on the Irrawaddy Flotilla Company's cargo boat, going up to Bamo, because I had been told she carried a bazaar on board, and that the Burmans came down from all the riverside villages to buy, affording a series of pictures well worth seeing, but, alas, I heard from the agent that the cargo boat had not come down. No one knew where she was, probably stuck on a sandbank. The one fact certain was that she could not possibly start north again on Sunday morning. This was a disappointment, as, if I went by train to Katha and then by river to Bamo, I missed much good scenery, and especially the great bell at Mingon. However, there was no help for it, so I made preparations to leave Mandalay by the midday train on Monday, and reluctantly parted from the city where I had spent four really happy days. End of chapter 7